0: This is Matt Piller, and you're listening to The Business of Biotech. Now, I often like to invite guests on the show who bring unique combinations of experiences to their leadership of the biopharmas that we cover. And as such, I'll often use this uh, intersection analogy, as in our guest sits at the intersection of Wall Street and biotech or some such thing. But if I try that analogy uh, on with my guest today, it would paint the picture of a very, very busy intersection. He is an accomplished attorney, having earned his JD at Harvard before practicing at Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati, a tier one firm catering to the highest of Silicon Valley high techs. He did some big time stuff while there, guiding the sale of Steve Jobs' then company Next to Apple, for instance. His further experience in the Valley includes founding a global web-based IT services platform, When he turned his attention to the life sciences, he became CEO of a European med device company and served as head of the pulmonary business unit at Nectar Therapeutics prior to negotiating the sale of that division to Novartis. During his tenure there, he spun two other entities out of Nectar, including Pearl Therapeutics, acquired in 2013 by AstraZeneca for a cool billion dollars. And then a little over 10 years ago, he founded EntreBio, now known as Resolute. His name is Nevin Charles Elam, and I'm thrilled that he's joined us. Nevin, welcome to the show.
1: Matt, thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you. And uh, needless to say, from my intro there, your your professional backstory is incredibly diverse. Um, and I want to start there. I want to start with sort of uh, uh, your thoughts on how your career, which winds through high tech and corporate law and healthcare, and eventually into the life sciences and biopharma How has all that experience, and I know it's a great big giant wide open question, but how has all that experience prepared you for this leadership role that you now have in a biopharmaceutical firm?
1: Thanks, Matt. It definitely is a a winding road if I look back at my career over the last nearly 30 years. Um, And it probably begins with the fact that I was born and raised in Silicon Valley. Uh, So I, I have a steeped in all things semiconductor. That's what my father did. Back in the days of Fairchild, uh, pre Intel. Uh, and so, uh, growing up in that environment in the 1970s and, and 1980s uh, definitely gave me a sense of entrepreneurship uh, and the spirit, as we like to say, of the Valley um, and the can do attitude. Um, so, through that, you know, returning back to the Valley after school, um, I had a very diverse legal practice. And that legal practice spanned everything from IT to life science companies, uh, companies working on novel therapeutics and others working on things that would eventually become Bluetooth. Uh, mm-hmm. And through that journey, um, you learn a lot. You see uh, success, the company's experience, and you also see what constitutes failure and the challenges that companies uh, encounter. And uh, it was clear to me that uh, being in the ivory tower in a law firm was was nice, but I really wanted to also get my uh, hands hands a little dirty and be on the management side and try to develop something uh, and be uh, active in the business community, uh, looking at in this case, uh, developing therapies. So it is a winding path for sure. Um, I think we each of us makes our way in our career and it's probably uh, rarely a straight line. Um, and mine um, has ended or at least began and has culminated in um, really pursuing uh, therapies for challenging diseases.
0: Yeah, well, talk about a challenge. I mean, you 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 set yourself up for a challenge that uh, you know you, you mentioned uh, being in a position where you have some sense of authority over success and failure in the IT space, which you know you know I, I've, I've covered for I, I covered for twenty years before coming to life sciences failure is a thing, but it's not quite as big a thing as it is in this, in this business. I mean, you, uh, did, did you know coming in that you were, you were uh, entering a business that, I mean, the, the, fa- the failure rate, you know, far outpaces the, the success rate?
1: Absolutely. I, I definitely I jumped into biopharmaceuticals, eyes wide open, yeah. having spent the 1990s watching my clients. And the real difference here is measurement, right? How you measure time in IT um, uh, and, and in that environment, or now in the things that we look at in web-based apps and cloud solutions, you know, time is measured in months and quarters versus in biopharmaceuticals where you're measuring seven to 10 years potentially of developing a therapy, bringing that therapy uh, to fruition and eventually approval. So it's a completely different, uh, completely different environment. Uh, so I knew having worked with you know, companies in the earlier days, like Genentech, its clients, uh, how long and, and difficult that path could be. And to your point, the failure rate is high versus saying being on the engineering side, where you have a challenge that you're trying to solve, whether um, how fast you can speed up a network. Uh, and it's an engineering challenge that may take months, um, but eventually you can probably solve that challenge. Whereas yeah. the human body, well, you may develop a therapy, but we have no idea how the human body is going to ultimately respond to it or what side effects will be generated from that therapy. Yeah. Or even if you develop a therapy, how hard it is to manufacture and pre- reproduce that uh, therapy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, still, uh, you know, obviously, uh, to your point, you, you had some experience with uh, biopharma uh, clients. Um, <laughs> And then some life sciences experience, still a pretty big leap to, to jump into, you know, founding a, a biopharma company. Tell us about, um, you know, I, I guess the origin story, what inspired you to launch the company? And, and, and if we can dovetail, you know, your, your inspiration to launch the company and then the, the inspiration mm-hmm. between, behind Resolute's mission around developing targeted therapies for metabolic diseases. Do those kind of meet somewhere?
1: They do. They do indeed. I'm happy to, happy to talk about that, um, as it is uh, for, for um, myself and my career, um, having been a, a senior executive at a much larger uh, public biotech company and having managed many programs, uh, but still having that entrepreneurship steeped in my blood from, uh, from childhood, watching my father uh, and his friends and others developing companies in Silicon Valley, um, wanted to do the same. And the passion, at least for me, was very clear, uh, having worked in different diseases. So I spent a lot of time working in metabolic disease uh, and rare diseases. And um, metabolic disease, you know, I was fortunate to have one drug uh, partnered with Pfizer that was ultimately approved and was the first inhaled insulin um, at my company. And that inhaled insulin was a chance for uh, individuals who suffer with diabetes during mealtime to be able to take a puff of insulin rather than inject themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, you know, arguably convenient, but it also changes a paradigm of how socially we interact. Um, The drug was eventually, after it was approved, it was clear it was not going to be a multi-billion dollar drug. Uh, And so for marketing reasons, Pfizer ended up um, uh, uh, terminating uh, the marketing of the drug. But when that happened, I received hundreds of letters from patients all over the world, from Kentucky to Spain, saying, what happened to my drug? where is it? It's changed my life. It's changed how I go about interacting socially and and engaging with the world. Um, And that's when you realize that the therapies you're developing, even when it's something that could be arguably convenient, have a tremendous impact. Um, And it's really, that's when it really comes home. Mm -hmm. Um, So looking at the metabolic space and realizing that there's there's definitely a need, Um, the metabolic uh, encompasses so much of the human body. Everything from how we regulate our the temperature of the human body to the food that we ingest um, and our blood sugar levels uh, and the horrible things like diabetes uh, when those things are out of whack. Um, it's, it's very, very telling. And I believe that while others have expertise in, in oncology and a mission to do that, um, there's also a huge unmet need for a lot of diseases and rare diseases that affect our overall overall metabolism. Mm-hmm. And I guess related to that would probably be the case that, you know, working on other therapies that are rare diseases, I spent time uh, around cystic fibrosis and cystic fibrosis is a, a horrible, horrible disease. Um, and often starts in, in childhood and watching children suffer with the disease. Um, you, I think I can't think of anything more, particularly as a parent, um, that's distressful than looking at a child, a young child suffering with an intractable disease. Um, and so ultimately, for me, working in meta- in the metabolic space and hopefully targeting therapies that could impact in a positive way children to me is kind of the holy grail of of a life's mission professionally.
0: yeah, yeah, that's uh that that's great. Uh, well, so let's talk about the 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 therapy itself. Um, tell me about r z three fifty eight which is your monoclonal antibody targeting congenital hyperinsulin hyperinsulinism, um, and if, if we could kind of start with uh, what, what we know at this point about the disease and then kind of uh, move from there into the therapies that you're developing.
1: Sure, happy to do so. Um, congenital hyperinsulinism is a, a very rare disease. It, it usually presents within the first month of life, definitely by the first year of life. Um, it affects about 1 in 30,000 live births um, so you're talking single-digit thousands of, of patients in the U.S., similar population, for example, in Europe, but it's also worldwide. And it depends on genetics because there are 12 different genetic mutations that we know of that cause the disease uh, or attributable to the disease. And in some patient populations, for example, in the Ashkenazi Jewish population, it's one in 2,500 live births, so a much higher incidence rate um, as a, 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 in different, different populations. The disease itself um, is extremely debilitating. There is no cure today. There is no approved treatment for the disease today as well. Um, And what it is, it's the easiest way to describe it, is kind of the opposite of diabetes. This is when children, regardless of blood sugar levels, overproduce insulin right at birth. And so when you're overproducing insulin, insulin is signaling to our downstream uh, cells and tissues and encouraging those cells to uptake glucose. Um, But if there's too much insulin, then you're starving the body of energy. And most importantly for children, uh, energy for the brain. And um, when you start starving the brain, that's particularly problematic. Um, And as we've seen, it's upwards of about 50% of the children with the disease have neurological impairment. Um, So really, really debilitating disease. The treatment options that have been used and are still used today range from using drugs that, again, were not approved for the therapy, but have an effect on trying to stop the insulin production. One drug, for example, uh, is a drug diazoxide uh, that is used and it is effective in about 40% of the children in stopping the production of insulin, but it comes with a whole host of nasty side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, everything from extensive hair growth on the children uh, to a black box warning for pulmonary hypertension, Um, It has to be co-administered with diuretics. Um, So not an ideal therapy, but it does work in a certain segment of that patient population. Regionally, other uh, other solutions involve surgery. So, for example, in Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is one of the leading centers in the world, uh, studying the disease and treating patients, surgery is used, particularly if there's a lesion on the pancreas that is focal and can be surgically removed. Um, That can be done and that can be curative. Uh, this gets a little more complicated if the disease is diffuse and spread throughout throughout the pancreas. That may require multiple surgeries and may end up leaving the child with uh, in a state of diabetes. So a very tough landscape. Um, not many therapies in development, and if, if you can imagine back to as I described that what it must be to have a child who you're constantly monitoring 24 hours a day to make sure their blood sugar levels aren't going um, excessively low and starving their body of energy a uh, nightmare. And having spent time with, with the patients and, and their families and parents um, and hearing the stories, uh, extremely difficult difficult landscape uh, to, to manage. Uh, so that's the short story of a background of the disease. Uh, the disease itself usually does tend to age out. So children may start at birth with the disease. Um, We don't know all the reasons why, but often by the time they're 18, 19 years old, the disease tends to get better. And that Mm. may just be because the pancreas is burning itself out, um, producing so much insulin. Having said that, there are patients in their 20s, 30s, 40s that still have severe disease. So there's a lot of heterogeneity um, and definitely a massive unmet need.
0: Yeah. Um, so what's the, I guess, what's, the, what's the backstory on pursuit of a monoclonal antibody as a, as a therapeutic? I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, you mentioned some other uh, treatment uh, options, uh, which decidedly are not bi- biologic per se. Um, so, so what's the story there? How, how did we land on, hey, let's, uh, let's try a map?
1: Yeah, the, the idea of, of using an antibody really is, and I think this is part of the advancement that we've seen in the last 25 years of therapeutic development and the concept that's being touted in a significant way in oncology, for example. And that is really looking at therapeutics that are targeting specific aspects of a disease or in some cases, genetics. Our antibody is not targeting genetics, um, but instead looking at developing a therapy that can uh, reduce the impact or the effect of all of the excess insulin in the human body. So using an antibody is really a targeted approach as a biologic. And so this antibody that we're bringing forward, RZ358 into late stage clinical development, was actually developed in concert with Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Mm -hmm. through a screening process uh, looking at an antibody platform to look for a specific antibody as a protein that would have the effect on the insulin receptor to the desired effect to be able to reduce insulin's signaling and binding affinity, which is what the antibody does. So it was very tar- a very targeted approach.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, can you give us some insight into the manufacturing approach there? Uh, are there, you know, t- tell us about the manufacturing approach, anything that's sort of novel about it, and um, and, and then we can talk about uh, perhaps development uh, challenges that you faced along the way.
1: Sure. Um, I'm happy, happy to do so. The, the manufacturing process and, you know, antibodies really since the mid-1980s uh, have gone through evolution in terms of how they're manufactured. Uh, through the animal cell line using mice. Um, and we've made a variety of evolution uh, to get to what we have now, which is a fully human monoclonal antibody, um, So, uh, which is great because it uh, reduces adverse uh, impact or adverse effects that you would expect to see in a patient when a fully human monoclonal antibody is used. Um, and the manufacturing process now is, is pretty much streamlined. Uh, so you actually look at taking a uh, the antibody and um, uh, you have to purify it uh, through a cell line through the master cell bank. Uh, and then it's about scaling it. Usually a 100 liter uh, single use bioreactor up to you know 1000, 2000 single use bioreactor. Um, so that purification process and then scaling it to be able then to apply it to a therapeutic. So there are worldwide uh, sophisticated manufacturers that are uh, uh, manufacturing antibodies as we speak um, in the last 15 years in particular. Uh, The manufacturing process is is very matured and uh, uh, high levels of predictability um, and a lot of expertise around the table.
0: The Business of Biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. This April, Cytiva celebrates one year in the biopharma industry, 12 groundbreaking and revolutionary months working to navigate and overcome the worst viral pandemic in a century. In recognizing this key milestone, we have the opportunity to reflect on lessons learned and identify ways to innovate, adapt, and improve. To help drive this progress, visit Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator and check out a selection of helpful resources for biotech leaders at citiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Is Resolute doing that in-house or are you working with an outsourcing partner?
1: No, we are definitely not doing it Uh, in-house. It is an undertaking for a a contract manufacturer, CDMO, uh, to really leverage their expertise. We have a core team uh, on our CMC side, uh, chemistry manufacturing controls team that manages our third parties. Uh, And so uh, that team has a lot of expertise, uh, both working with antibodies as well as just in general manufacture of therapeutics. And so we work with our partners, and I can definitely think of them as our partners. Uh, They're not vendors because we are, you know, really joined at the hip with the success of a program because if they can't manufacture uh, the antibody or manufacture it timely, that has a massive impact clearly on our business.
0: Sure. Uh, Did did you, uh, were there any specific, I guess, developmental hurdles or challenges along the way that, you know, you had to, you had to overcome and kind of lead, lead the team through?
1: I would say that because the process itself has really been refined and and, and it's streamlined and there are multiple organizations that can uh, produce the antibody um, with that expertise. One of the challenges actually is just getting space, um, Uh getting a space in line to be able to have a a manufacturing run and to have lots that are actually produced, uh, put on stability, um, checked, verified through the quality process before ready to use and to be used in the human. Um, so when you talk about long lead times, that can be a year, year and a half, two years. If you think you need a new batch of material uh, to be able to take forward into a clinical study or ultimately into commercial. Um, so while there is expertise, uh, there's a lot of demand and a lot of demand for uh, antibody uh, manufacture. And so one of the biggest challenges is long lead time planning because it's expensive. So you the capital investment up front may be large and you may not realize the result meaning drug that's ready ready for use for two two and a half years later
0: yeah what's your uh i I guess what's what's your personal kind of outlook on that you know you it, it, it seems as though there are new CMOs opening their doors all the time. You know, I've I've read reports recently that say within the next couple of years, the majority of of quote unquote drug product produced in the United States will be biologic drug drug product. I mean, it's obviously a very fast growing area. Is are you seeing any any signs that uh, perhaps the manufacturing space is starting to to catch up with the demand and the promise of, of biologic therapies manufacturing?
1: We were absolutely up until um, I think the the pandemic with COVID 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, the demand on most manufacturers has been overwhelming, where yeah. there are shortages of vials, of glass, of all kinds of uh, the basic tools uh, in the toolkit that are used for manufacture. Um, so hopefully, on the back end of uh, of the current pandemic, we will see a a new normal, uh, including in terms of manufacturing capability and not just capability, but to your point, uh, other manufacturers that may come online and just overall greater capacity because capacity constraint, that's the issue today.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I want to talk about uh, your rare pediatric disease de- designation. Um, so you 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 received that last summer for RZ358. And I mean, as you know, our, our show is uh, consumed by uh, leaders of of new and emerging biotechs, a lot of them first time leaders of of new and emerging biotechs. Uh, so, give us some some insight and advice into what went into receiving that designation, and uh, you know what 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 you as a company had to do to put it together, and what it means for the the future of the candidate.
1: Sure, Matt. the um, the, the rare disease designation uh, is something that was put in place about um, fifteen years ago. Um, or actually 2007 uh, timeframe by the FDA, um, uh, tied with a priority review voucher, which I'll come to uh, in a second, but it really is to, really to drive companies to develop therapies for challenging diseases that are specifically pediatric. So um, it's an incentive that the FDA put in place that if you can develop a therapy with a a high unmet need, with a significant uh, pediatric population, then you would be eligible for this designation and so what we've seen in the last you know 12 13 years or so uh, is companies have applied for that designation with this voucher that comes with the designation um, and the reason why that's significant is the voucher is something that a company can use for its next therapeutic uh, and so what the fda says is that typically the time uh, towards looking at approval of a therapeutic is about 10 months um, and if you have a voucher, the uh FTA in effect says you can skip the line and truncate that time period to about six months.
0: Hmm.
1: It may now sound like a lot, but if you're launching a blockbuster drug in your larger pharma, every month can mean you know tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of potential revenue, um, especially in a competitive environment. And so what we've seen in the last you know, again, 10 or so years is smaller companies that are developing for a rare disease that's pediatric getting the voucher upon approval. So in our case, for example, RZ358, if we made it through phase three and we actually got the therapy approved, we would then be eligible for uh, the voucher. Uh, And you've often seen these small companies uh, such as ourselves, because we are not uh, one of the large, uh, large pharmaceutical companies actually monetizing those vouchers. And yep. typically they go for in the neighborhood of 100 million dollars um, you can actually sell to larger pharma so that is the um, uh the the uh, notability of the rare disease designation coupled with the voucher itself
0: yeah yeah well congratulations on that It's certainly uh exciting and i'm I'm sure it was uh you know it's a it's a shot in the arm as as far as future progress is concerned
1: Absolutely, at least it uh, you know potential uh, that that could be realized uh, as we as we progress. Hope so. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, So, give us uh, the highlights of the clinical journey. Um, You 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 entered into phase two B a phase phase two B trial last winter. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. We did, and so we are uh, we're doing a global study um, Mm -hmm. in this disease. And when you work in rare diseases, one of the things that uh, I really like working in rare diseases is that it's often a tight knit community. So there is congenital hyperinsulinism international, which is the patient advocacy group. They're very active with a registry of patients as well as um, promoting therapies, potential therapies for patients and uh, bringing together physicians. So there are a number of uh, physicians worldwide, whether you're in Turkey, Bulgaria, uh, China, uh, and of course in the U S that actually treat these patients and treat these children and deal with the same issues regardless of geography. And so we wanted to make sure that we put together a late stage program that was robust. So our study is the RISE study with a Z of course, Uh to go with Resolute. Uh Um, And uh, we did launch that in in more than 10 countries uh, and just before the start of the the pandemic. And we've been working our way through that. And it's nice now to be in a position, position as the pandemic abates in certain geographies to begin screening patients again uh, as we look to, to complete that study. Yeah. So the study itself, is a, it's about 24 patients uh, where they're given um, um, uh, multiple doses of uh, our therapeutic uh, and uh, we would then look to see how we are impacting their episodes of hypoglycemia. So it's a robust study. We screen the patients uh, for 10 days before they uh, are dosed. Um, and uh, and then look to take a variety of measurements throughout the study, and are hopeful that we will demonstrate that we can have a significant impact on reducing the hypoglycemic episodes and duration of those episodes. Um, and we're measuring all of that um, uh, in a very, very direct way.
0: Yeah, very cool how how just how taxing uh was it or, or distracting or cumbersome was it to deal with? Uh, the, the pandemic as you're moving through this study. I mean, you mentioned that it's a global study, which is obviously gives you a good diverse pa- you know, patient population to your point, it gives you access to some areas that perhaps are, are not as affected at, at the present time by the pandemic. But at the same time, it's, I mean, it's gotta be limiting. There, there have to be lim- limiting circumstances you've had to battle through.
1: Yeah, Matt, we, we definitely did have to battle through. And this is one of the challenges of being a small company. Um, not only did the pandemic hit, just as we were having all, all of the traction of getting a study um, underway um, with a lot of focus from the key opinion leaders and, and physicians, uh, other physicians involved, um, but we also needed to raise money. And so as a small company, we don't have the luxury of being, again, a big pharmaceutical company with hundreds of millions of dollars on our balance sheet. We were just in the process of looking at raising money uh, when the pandemic began. So we had to quickly shift gears as a team of about 25. We put in place what we called the COVID operating budget to make sure we could weather the storm um, and survive through the pandemic, knowing that clinical studies were largely going to be on hold and to come out the uh, other side of that in a strong position and to continue to push forward. So we were fortunate and that was the biggest challenge. But last summer, uh, the summer of 2020, we were able to engage with uh, some top tier healthcare funds, and culminating with a, a raise that we completed in Q4 of 2020, and a listing on the Nasdaq. So uh, fortunate to be able to thread the needle, um, but that was without a doubt uh, our biggest challenge uh, was being able to sustain operations and to be able to continue to push forward.
0: Yeah, well, congratulations are certainly in order for, for that uh, alone. Um, and I hadn't planned on, on asking you this, but you know, since you brought it up, the the you know the the, the COVID budget. <laughs> um, what you know, there there are a lot of companies who who are are continuing, you know, to to suffer kind of through clinical operations as this pandemic refuses to release its grip on the patient population, particularly, I mean, you know, in, in, in pediatrics, you, you feel it, I, I think in a particularly pointed way, uh, you know, obviously in geriatric populations, elderly populations, uh, it's, it's put a real, real strain on those companies. So, you know, lo- looking at that, I guess, conser- conservative approach to, to budgeting, to kind of weather that storm, is there any particular advice that you would give your peers that are seeing some of this for the first time, uh, around that, you know, really kind of, where it made sense the most buckled down and, and, and kind of bear through it.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, back to our early part of our discussion, and this is comes from, you know, experience, you know, 20, 25 years ago, watching my clients um, Mm -hmm. look at, you know, struggling in different, in different sectors, but trying to raise capital, trying to keep uh, the lights on and trying to produce a product, whether it be a biopharmaceutical into clinical development or earlier stage or something on the, uh, on the tech side. Mm -hmm. Um, And so having seen that and and learned from that, one of the things that I think is fundamental is doing everything you can to protect your team, protect the people, uh, because that's really the key asset. So that's first and foremost, is making sure you have resources put in place and are prepared as a senior team, if you need to, to take sacrifices in terms of your own compensation um, and in a variety of ways, such that you can keep a team intact to be able to weather the storm. Um, I like to always say, you know, if you think it's going to be bad, assume it's going to be worse. yeah, um, and then to really plan around that. So, with the capital that we had, you know I wanted to make sure we if we thought we only had you know three quarters of capital that we wanted to make sure we could stretch that to six quarters or seven quarters of capital. Um, and you have to take a look at everything that's non-essential uh, and to make sure that you're only spending money. On things that are actually going to be meaningful to the business when you come out the other side, um, and so sometimes you have to make painful trade-offs. Uh, but again, I think it starts with a team and the people, and preserving that, uh, and then um, having a plan to hopefully you know get the, get capital and then uh, to to move forward.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you, you you crossed that bridge, and again, congratulations on your recent round. Thank That's you. uh, yep, good news heading into the new year. Um, so, tell us what what's next for RZ three fifty eight and and I also, you know, I don't want to uh, I don't want to ignore the fact that this isn't your only candidate. I, I know you've got some other irons in the fire. So, if you wanna, you know, give us an overview on those as well, uh, I welcome you to.
1: Sure, happy to do so. Um, For RZ358, you know, clearly we are focused on this patient population and congenital hyperinsulinism being in phase 2B, you know, in late stage development, um, want nothing more than to get through the study and produce meaningful results uh, and then to look at phase 3 and hopefully not the too distant future to have an approved product that actually really does change the, the lives of these children uh, and of the families and gives a whole new armament for the physicians that treat the patient population. So we are definitely focused on that and we think of ourselves as the congenital hyperinsulinism company from a therapeutic perspective.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but as it turns out, hypoglycemia is what our antibody deals with. It deals with the state of hypoglycemia. And there are other uh, diseases and states in the, of the human body where hypoglycemia is problematic. So we are absolutely, um, looking at uh, the possibility of, uh, of expanded indications and applying our antibody in other areas as well. So nothing at this point to specifically announce or to describe, mm-hmm. but suffice it to say, we are absolutely aware of the landscape of hypoglycemia, um, and some of the challenging uh, environments where an antibody like ours would be ideally suited. Yeah. In terms of, uh, Our other other pipeline program, which we are uh, excited about, uh, it's very much a different program. Uh, It's just entered phase one. uh, So we are dosing patients uh, actively here in the US uh, in a phase one study for our program, RZ402, which is going after diabetic macular edema. And diabetic macular edema is the leading cause of blindness uh, in the adult population in the US and Europe and other parts of the world it is a side effect of diabetes. It's not an eye disease, actually. Um, It is a direct result of of the cascade and the problems associated with diabetes. It's a vascular leakage disease, microvascular leakage disease into the back of the eye. So when you have diabetes, there are a whole host of of complications that can come with, with diabetes, including in the vasculature, and the vasculature can become permeable. And that's what we see in, uh, in DME or diabetic macular edema. Today, that's treated. And there's therapies that are out there that are effective um, in a lot of patients, uh, which are the anti-VEGF injections. So these are the injections into the eye. Not the ideal route of administration. Uh, there are a lot of compliance issues associated with injections into the eye. Um, patients don't get on therapy, uh, in our opinion, soon enough. And even when they're on, on therapy, there's a tendency not to have the injections on the frequency uh, that should occur to be able to have real efficacy. Mm-hmm. And In contrast to that, we're bringing forward an oral therapy. We're using a completely different pathway, looking to inhibit the cascade that leads to this vascular leakage, mm-hmm. and it's called the calocrine kinin system. And so we have a calocrine inhibitor, and that is an oral therapy, which now is in phase one. And because it's oral, we can have a pretty quick development pathway going through phase one and into phase two proof of concept in 2022, uh, which we wouldn't have if we again were looking at uh, another injection into the eye, for example, to compete. So potential game changer uh, that we're excited about. We're we're really uh, motivated by what we've seen in our animal pharmacology, um, in the doses and concentrations and exposure and ability to inhibit that vascular leakage. And hope to replicate the same in human beings.
0: yeah so, yeah. yeah that's uh, yeah that that is uh, that that would be a game changer. It's a disease that I think uh, you know everyone's got experience with, so you know through loved ones and and colleagues and friends um, and uh, the the standards of care are certainly to your point uh, le- less than ideal.
1: yeah, absolutely yeah. absolutely.
0: You know, as it, it just occurs to me, Nevin, as it relates to your work in metabolic diseases, I've often said that you don't get a haircut from a guy, uh, you know, from from a bartender with, or a bartender, a barber that is with a bad haircut. And looking at you, <laughs> look, looking at you, you appear to me as though you have the metabolism of an eighteen-year-old, and I know you've been around the, uh, much longer than that.
1: Yeah, well, I, well, that's <laughs> really kind of you. You know, I guess flattery can get you get you places, but. <laughs> I, I think I'm just, uh, fortunate with, uh, with good genetics and, 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 try to stay active. Take um, care of yourself. Yeah. And, and otherwise you would see all the white in my hair, but I'm follically challenged. <laughs> um, so, you know, I thank Michael Jordan in the 1980s for making it cool to shave your head
0: because I've been, do-
1: I've been doing that for more than 25 years. Uh, so I wouldn't walk around looking like Bozo the clown. <laughs>
0: I, uh, I I waffle between the two. You know, if you looked at my LinkedIn profile photo, I'm 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 bald. That's like my summer haircut, and every winter, you know, I'm 45 now, and every winter I I attempt to to grow it back, and I realize that it's you know the comb over is getting a little bit more noticeable. So it's only a matter of time before I'm right there with you.
1: Well, right now though, you're living the dream. You can do it whatever you want. So, <laughs> and you're in your mid 40s. I see you're you're an extra time.
0: So that's great. That's right. That's right. Uh, any any concluding thoughts, Nevin, that you wanted to share with our audience? Any, I guess, maybe uh, pearls of wisdom or advice for those uh, new and, and first-time biopharma execs who are kind of starting to starting down charting charting the the path that you began some ten plus years ago.
1: Well, man, I definitely enjoyed the conversation and pearls of wisdom. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, only thing I would say is that what I've learned from others that have taught me and learned from those that I've just observed as well is the importance of maintaining a positive attitude Mm -hmm. and being able to stay focused on what your goals are, recognizing there will be challenges, but having that positive attitude and maintaining that attitude with your team is fundamental because anything less than that can often uh, lead to uh, the opposite of success. So that would be the only thought I would have to share, but I enjoyed the conversation and I appreciate you having me um, on your
0: show. Yeah, well, I appreciate you joining us. And that's sound advice from a man who's uh, been there and done that in in many, to to my earlier points, uh, many industries. Um, So thank you. Thank you for joining us and congratulations on your success to date. We'll uh, we'll be following along and, and hoping for the best for you and Resolute. Thanks
1: again, Matt. Really appreciate it.
0: So that's Nevin Elam. I'm Matt Piller, and this is The Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, which along with this podcast is celebrating its one-year anniversary this month. Learn more about Cytiva's commitment to the innovation happening in new and emerging biopharma at citivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. And please visit bioprocessonline.com where you can catch up on all the episodes of this podcast and sign up for my newsletter while you're at it. In the meantime, subscribe to the pod, listen to more conversations like this one. Give us five stars, and thanks for listening.